Welcome back to another episode of Coronavirus with What They Aren't Telling You. I am Melissa Floyd, your host, and we are coming back for a second episode with Minnesota State Senator and Dr. Scott Jensen, who was one of the first people who really spoke out against this narrative, especially with death certificate recording from the CDC. And he was on Fox News. He was on some different news stations as well. And we talked about a lot of this stuff with coronavirus on the vaccine conversation with Dr. Bob Sears. Um, And I just, I really like this guy so much. And so I asked him to come on this podcast and let's talk about the unpopular opinion. In this case, we're talking about coronavirus. And so today we're going to continue with the second part of that interview with Dr. Scott Jensen. It feels definitely like this is all part of a news cycle. Specifically, I found it really interesting that public health officials across the nation actually came out, officially came out, and said they do not believe the mass protesting in the numbers of the thousands was in any way a potential risk for COVID spread or transmission. They just wanted people to know it was unlikely that there would be any transmission. Now, this is after four months of our entire world and societies being shut down, schools being shut down, people not able to work, and highly, highly critical of people that were doing rallies to reopen the economy because that was, those were the grandma killers. These were the words that they used because those kind of people were selfish, irresponsible. They don't care about their neighbors. They're going to spread COVID. And we're talking about people in the hundreds, by the way, compared to multiple thousands. And yet public health officials came out on the record to say, No, these protests are not going to be any risk of spreading COVID. We're like two weeks ago, you just said you can't even, you know, go outside without a mask if you're, you know, walking your dog. I mean, you know, this kind of like contradictory information and the different messages the media is giving, it's really hard to think it's based on something consistent, something, you know, foundational with any kind of data-based or evidence-based background. Yeah, I agree with you, Melissa. I do. It's uh. It's troubling and it's it's very, very difficult to speak uh, to America. I think we're seeing some lockdown fatigue. I think we're seeing the American public moving remarkably close to a legitimate consideration of civil unrest or civil disobedience in terms of what would their next step be if there were another lockdown? Are people going to be as willing to, okay, well, if this is what we have to do, I think that Policymakers have to be very, very careful. And are you are you getting that impression where you are that people are getting to that point where they're they're kind of frustrated with this? Absolutely. I think especially there were two things that happened in Minnesota that I think people have really targeted. One was more than a month ago, the Wisconsin Supreme Court said the governor had exceeded his constitutional authority and they threw out his peacetime powers. And so there was naturally restaurants, everything opened up in one fell swoop. There was no turning a dial or easing into it incrementally. So the thought was, wow, what's going to happen 10 to 20 days from now? Well, nothing happened. Fact of the matter is Wisconsin with more people in it than Minnesota has, they've got greater population. They've got less disease, less deaths. The other thing that happened in Minnesota, we obviously had you know incredible upheaval with uh, riots and demonstrations. People standing next to each other, oftentimes screaming and hollering, and certainly not uniformly wearing masks. And in that situation, the question was, oh boy, are we going to get another peak or another spike 
in 10 to 15 days. And we didn't. So now, if you try to go back and tell the common man, the common woman in Minnesota, listen, we got to do this because this will happen otherwise. And we're seeing articles from Norway that did do a lockdown. And they're saying, you know what? We didn't need to do it. And you got Sweden coming out saying, you know, you keep watching our numbers. We're going to be just fine. Our biggest issue was long-term care facilities and one hotspot in Stockholm. But I think that in Minnesota, I'm absolutely seeing people saying enough is enough. And that was why actually I signed on to a lawsuit to sue Governor Walls with some other legislators. And the hearing date is in the middle of July, because on three different counts, I feel like there's a problem. One is that in peacetime powers in the Minnesota statute, it doesn't mention public health matters. It talks about natural disasters. And so it's a stretch to say that we should treat a six-month pandemic, 12-month pandemic, whatever, the same as we would terrible flooding or tornadoes or something like this. So that's one. Another one is Governor Walls has said, well, all the legislature has to do to stop me from having peacetime powers is veto it. But he knows as well as anybody that he's got a stacked deck with a substantial majority in the Democratic House. So while the Senate did vote and the peacetime powers, the Republican Senate, the Democratic House didn't even come close to it and said, no, we're going to give it to them for another 30 days. Well, the fact of the matter is our Constitution provides no mechanism for the legislature to have veto power. So we, we don't have that. And then lastly, the executive orders that the governor has been putting out look an awful lot like legislation without the benefit of going through legislative committees, judiciary oversight. He's literally taking this crisis and legislating whether or not he's going to do mail voting in elections. He's doing it in regards to how we're going to rebuild the city based on riots and buildings being burnt down. This thing is stretching so far and wide that he's violating the Constitution by legislating with executive orders. And those are the three reasons why I signed on to this court case, because we got to stop it. But the people in Minnesota, I think, are starting to, if you will, give us, some of us who've been saying this, they're, they're giving us a little bit of, if you will, reaffirmation saying, we're with you. Please do that. And I know a big part of why, you know, everybody has been behind all of these uh, policy leaders thinking that they're keeping us safe is there was a risk, a genuine risk at the time or what people thought of this asymptomatic transmission. And so everybody's like, well, you know, I haven't been sick in the last couple months. I don't have any symptoms. But according to what they're telling me, I could just be perfectly healthy and be an asymptomatic carrier at any point and accidentally kill somebody because I'm being irresponsible. So therefore, I need to stay at home longer. Therefore, I need to encourage everybody, you know, masks to be mandated. And then data comes out that actually shows something we already kind of knew, which is there's no real proof that any asymptomatic carrier actually created secondary transmission in another person to actually create an infection, similar to the surfaces, the surface argument. Yeah, you can measure a virus on a surface. Does, is that the same thing as being able to say that that virus could cause a full-blown infection in another person? No, because that wasn't measured. And so now we've got this 
asymptomatic transmission as the main thing driving the continued focus on lockdowns and policies and preventing kids from school without masks and things like that. Even though data, you know, from the from the World Health Organization, we saw we saw Maria come out and say something and the next day she pulled it back so fast because of course everybody was up in arms. Wait a second. What do you mean it's very rare? Isn't that the whole reason we've been on lockdown for the last extra three months or whatever it is? So how do we now convince or discuss this with people who are still unwilling to have that discussion? Oh, you were worried about asymptomatic transmission, I understand, but now data shows that's not a concern. So now what? How, how can we move forward differently and why don't they want to? Well, I think what we have is a battle royale between two different narratives. And I think people in the middle, there's an awful lot of Americans that I think are in between the 40-yard lines. And so I think that hopefully people like you, Melissa, can get a message out there that doesn't seem to be so polarizing and seems to be targeting as good of information as we can. And and one of the things we have to do is we, we have to ask ourselves, what are the right questions that we, we should be asking? And one of the questions is going to be, are masks going to be helpful? Let's not just jump to conclusions because we want to throw mud on the wall to see what sticks. I know in my office that I have some patients that have passed out from wearing masks. I've had some patients that have deoxygenated because they came into my office, walked upstairs because they wore masks. When you're breathing the same air over and over again, you certainly deplete the oxygen and sometimes that can have an impact. So one of the questions we can legitimately ask is, what is the role of masks going to be down the road? Another question is, can we get school-aged children back in school in September? Another question is going to be, is there any value to doing another lockdown? These are the questions we have to ask. And I think that if we keep asking these questions and we do it in a respectful fashion, I think there's going to be a lot of people who pay attention and say, okay, I'm tuning in, I'm listening. I mean, you and I both know that an awful lot of people are sort of dug in on one side and they're dug in on the other. But I think Hopefully, the bulk of America, the bulk of Minnesota is saying, okay, you know, I've I got my own bent on this, my own inclination, but I don't want to be one of those people. I want to be someone who's willing to let facts impact on my opinion. And so I think all we can do is just continue the conversation, continue to be respectful, try to be kind. We don't want to go flying off the handle. I mean, I was driving to work today and one person didn't like it that I pulled out in front. He never had to slow down and he flipped me the bird. Then another person, when we came up to a four-way stop, the person in front of me took off. I came to a quick pause and I took off and he's ahead of me and he flipped me the bird because evidently he didn't like how long I had stopped. To me, what this reflects is we're uptight as a nation. And when the media and the politicians and the bureaucrats continue to do what they're doing to us. They may not want to own it, but darn it, I think they should own it because we are not in a healthy place as a country. We have got somehow find a way to be kinder, gentler, and more thankful. And you think this has all been exacerbated by the quarantine, lockdown, obviously the stress that comes with people being unemployed, uncertain of their future, potentially suicidal, um, these internal debates. Absolutely. It could be no other way. I mean, literally, we know that there are diseases and deaths occurring from desperation, whether we're talking about abuse, suicide, child abuse, or whether we're talking about delay in getting your breast cancer 
taken care of or your colon cancer surgically resected. I mean, we are going to see the fallout from this. Right now, every once in a while in Minnesota, we'll see an article where they say, oh, my, my, the unemployment rate is higher than it's ever been. No kidding, Sherlock. <laughs> what the hell did you expect? And when you take away someone's dream and you make them spend all of their savings so that they can't even afford to get their puppy his shots, yeah, you are making that household a cauldron of emotions and you are asking for trouble. And you know what? We're getting it. Yeah, I kind of said it seems like it's like the firewood. The quarantine was like the firewood, just waiting for anything to explode. And kind of what we saw with the protests and mass rioting is like, you know, I don't know that that would have happened just like that had we not have had this, you know, pre-existing five months of all of these emotions being bottled and being caged in, essentially, that led to, you know, something disastrous in the response. And it felt, it felt like it was just, just a matter of time. Well, Mike Osterholm made a comment uh, within the last few days. He said, you know, we've got to quit thinking about this thing called social distancing. He said, let's, let's be clear. We need to physically distance. You know, whether it's, I think in Europe, a lot of times they'll talk about one meter, which is 39 inches. And then clearly in America, we've talked about six feet. And now we're talking about six feet and more than 15 minutes exposure. But what Osterholm said is we have to quit social distancing. We have to find a way to socially bridge with one another because that's the creature that a human is. And when we disrupt that, we disrupt far more than we realize. Yes, we need to physically distance. We need to not touch our nose, our mouth, our eyes. Nobody plays with their nose and their eyes more than the person wearing a mask who doesn't just leave it on and leave it in place. And very few people do that. Even the biggest zealots of wearing masks are constantly fiddling with it. And they don't have N95 masks. And the masks aren't appropriately fitted. And there's holes. And some of them wear below their nose. It is a joke. I think so, too. And I, I know I feel like I could talk to you about this topic, honestly, forever. But I, I'm trying to be conscious of your time. Um, I just have two questions that I want to finish with. And maybe we can continue this conversation again um, if you're open to it because there's so much to talk about. Um, so one of the things I've been really interested in, and I've done a lot of research on is vitamin D deficiency. And I've been a big proponent of vitamin D supplementation for many years now. Um, I looked into some data pre COVID about ICU admissions and the ICU stays. And they, there were some really interesting studies that pointed out you have twice the likelihood of mortality out of ICU admissions, four times the ICU stay, the length of stay, and five times the cost for a patient um, who's vitamin D deficient. I know that they now have also connected this to COVID and seeing connections between vitamin D deficiency and increase in complications and mortality, which to me is no shock because, again, I've been researching this for a while. I have been very disappointed that with all of the daily press briefings that we've seen with our state leaders and even federal leaders, there has not been a single discussion, and I don't mean just about vitamin D, there has not been a single discussion about what people can do to improve the strength of their immune system to prevent a complication if they are exposed to COVID. Not a single discussion about Supplementing with vitamin D, making sure you're getting activity, decreasing sugar, decreasing alcohol intake, talking about food and nutrition, talking about the underlying conditions based on lifestyle choices. People literally got sicker during quarantine because they were eating comfort foods. They were not getting activity. They were not getting sunshine. 
And now you saw in New York, the the numbers of hospitalizations were 70% based on those who are sheltering in place. And I'm just bewildered that we, and in no time did I see a governor get on and say, you know what, let's talk about what you should be doing. Let's talk about how to improve your chances so you're not a statistic. We don't want more deaths. We don't want more ICU stays. Here's what you can do because there are things that you can do. How come our regulatory agencies and our leaders are not actually coaching people about health? If they want to save lives, where has that discussion been in this entire conversation? Well, the skeptic would say that there's no money in it. But I think uh, you make a very good point. Vitamin D, I think one of the most important things that perhaps we could convey to the listening audience is, let's be clear that people realize that vitamin D is not a vitamin. Vitamin D is a pre-hormone. Vitamin D oftentimes is thought to be important to absorb calcium and build strong bones, sort of like Wonder Bread. But the fact of the matter is, vitamin D is a pre-hormone. And as such, it has a profound impact in many ways that we don't even realize. Without our hormones, humans die, no question about it. Hormones drive our immune system, cardiovascular system. That's why vitamin D has value in helping manage diabetes. There's so much we don't know about vitamin D. I did a video, Melissa, about maybe two months ago saying, what can you do to make your immune system stronger? And I talked about vitamin D and zinc and staying fit and trying to be peaceful and counting your blessings and walk and reduce your carbohydrates, increase your proteins. You know, there's a lot we can do. You know, vitamin C has a role potentially. Uh, If you're not eating a balanced diet, for heaven's sakes, make certain that you're taking a multivitamin daily because it's not going to hurt you. But you're right. Nobody's interested in that narrative because, well, typically in America, you know, if you're going to invest your money in the stock market, we seem to want to see our money double in a week. And we take that same attitude in in our health. We think, well, if you're asking me to do something in the long haul, like, you know, lose 10 pounds or 20 pounds or start exercising four times a week for at least 10 minutes, you know, that's just a little bit over the top. Don't you think, Doc? We need to use this COVID-19 as an opportunity for us to pivot. Say, you know what? We all can do better. And I think vitamin D is a part of that equation, but there's there's no driving force to make that happen. And that's why I cynically said a few moments ago, there's no money in it because you don't have a big drug company making big money on this. And that's part of the problem. I mean, I've just been shocked. I mean, like just knowing that the underlying conditions, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, these are things that get worse If you're in quarantine, eating Cheetos and drinking sugary sodas and feeling stressed because the media is making you think you're going to die next week. I mean, you know, in order for people to feel better about the risk, they need to feel more confident that their body can experience COVID without complications, right? It's not about getting a positive test. That's not the risk. The risk is that positive turning into complications because your body's not in a good state of health. And health is just not the conversation we're having. The way I look at it is when I hear people that say they want the lockdown to continue, I say, how long are you going to hide from this? Inevitably, you're going to be exposed, whether it's this year, next year. All it takes is one case from some place that comes in and a new outbreak starts. You cannot stay in a cave forever. So knowing that, what could you do to arm yourself to, to give you the best chances of having a mild case. I think you are spot on. That's exactly the way we want people to think. It's responsible. Uh, It encourages uh, people to 
take on the role of championing their own health. And it is a real comment on our political and public health narrative that that's been what's missing. I mean, the whole thing's about saving lives. It's like, yeah, I know there's another layer to this. You want to educate people, especially people in poor communities who haven't previously had access to that kind of education. This is your chance. Everybody's tuned in to the television. This is the opportunity. Imagine how our health could have improved over the last five months as a collective had we been focusing the right way, the way that some other European countries do, which is why they're having better numbers. Well, imagine a cohort study being put in place right now where you take 10,000 people that haven't had the disease that are approximately uh, maybe have a BMI of about 30 and uh, you, such and such pre-existing conditions or not. And you put 10,000 in one arm of the study and another 10,000 in another. And the 10,000 where you're going to intervene, you're going to say, we want you to take um, 5,000 units of vitamin D every other day. And we want you to exercise at least 15 minute walk every other day. And we want you to get at least 40% of your calories from proteins and no more than 30% of your calories from carbohydrates and let the other group go ahead and do what you've been doing. And then try to track those 10,000 in each arm as we move through this pandemic over the next 15 months, probably. And let's see if people enhancing their own immune system, taking the lead on making themselves healthier. Let's see if that doesn't do something that's real. Because you and I would both advocate for the position that it will make a difference. But, and it wouldn't be an expensive study. There's no big gravy train payoff for anybody. Because there's nothing out there that's going to be remdesivir or whatever other drugs we try to put. It's not about a big payoff. It's about trying to get people to do that which they can do. And instead, they're not doing it. They're being paralyzed by fear. And the media seems to think that they're doing this terrific job of getting real information to the public, which I would argue with. Well, and I think that fear is actually taking a physical toll and making people more susceptible to disease, not just COVID, but other disease. Uh, you know, anybody who has really gone into holistic health in any way understands that mind-body connection and the state of stress that you're living in is not going to be good for the immune system and for the body so that you are, are going to be, you know, healthy moving forward. But I'll finish with this. Um, you talked about not really knowing that what you were in for when you came out with your opinions, not being prepared for the backlash, the negative response for some. What was it that made you not want to silence your voice as you moved forward? Why weren't you one of the ones that decided, you know what, this is too much for me. I'd rather just get approval. I'm going to stay silent. I'm going to stay quiet. That's a great question. I don't know that I was actually prepared for you asking that question. I would say for me, I think I have lived, and I'm 65 years old, I have lived a lifetime of skepticism. So it's difficult to deter me from that path. It's not the easiest path by which to live a life, but it's one path and it seems to have worked for me. So I think, in, you know, I'm not someone that's going to back off just because someone's telling me to back off. I think the other thing is that there was this groundswell of people out there saying, gee, Doc, I hadn't quite thought of it that way. I really appreciate it. Would you please keep up the fight and keep letting me know? Because I need some help sometimes understanding the science of what's going on. And they're basically telling me, I appreciate your willingness to connect the dots. 
And I think lastly, I think the hypocrisy really drove me to say the hell with you. And, you know, perhaps the biggest one was the CDC. Now, I have spent my medical career reading CDC documents, getting their uh, updates. And when they came out and did what they did on death certificates, and then when they came out and co-mingled their testing data so that we didn't know if someone had been tested for active molecular antigenic PCR test or if they'd been tested for serology, IgG, IgM. They they literally commingled their data. There were epidemiologists all around the country saying, what were they thinking? Recently, there was an article about, you know, the CDC really dropped the ball when their initial batch of tests were contaminated. And once they realized that they should have reached out to somewhere where they were doing it right, Germany had a very good test. The CDC didn't. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need the CDC. But quite honestly, we need the CDC to step up to the plate, quit being so hypocritical, quit being so political. We need our politicians to quit forcing the CDC to be political. And we need this to be a bright, shining beacon of science, like it has been at times, but certainly isn't now. And I think when I was getting attacked because I was attacking the CDC, I thought, nuts to you. Because quite frankly, the CDC brought a lot of this on themselves. And I think Robert Redfield would say that. And I think there's nobody that's going to benefit by rooting for the CDC to fail. We should want the CDC to succeed. But we should want them to stop the mission creep, stop expanding the scope of what they're doing, because a lot of that mission creep is nothing more than a political agenda. They should be science-based. They should remember that they were started in the 1940s as an organization to help us against malaria. Somewhere along the line, they decided to dabble into this and dabble into that and tell us what we should have in our homes as whether or not we should uh, wear life belts, life jackets, whether we have guns, whether we wear a helmet when we ski or bicycle. I mean, they've gone off the rails. We need them to tuck it in, become the scientific organization they were created to be. But I think those are the three things that really kept me in. It was one, the groundswell of support from the people, uh, the hypocrisy I saw uh, from CDC and things like that, and my natural bent towards being a skeptic. Yeah, I think the conflict of interests, conflicts of interest for the CDC is a definite huge concern. And uh, unfortunately, when things get big enough and there's enough money there, it, it tends to always go that way. The same thing with politicians that we're seeing. And then you're not getting just straight information, objective information. And it's really hard to trust what's coming out at that point. And it's always good to stay objective. Well, I, for one, am very glad that you did not stay silent on this. You were one of the first people that um, caught my eye that was discussing openly about the same things I was same conclusions I was coming to. So I'm, I'm happy that you continued. I also, you know, get the same kind of responses where you get people going, thank you for speaking out. Thank you for continuing to educate me. And that's the kind of stuff that keeps you going. And I know a lot of people that follow my page have been uh, big supporters of you. So if um, you're ever bored and want to keep <laughs> chatting about this at any time, um, I would love to do that because I respect you a lot and appreciate your viewpoint. And uh, thank you so much for joining me again for this episode today. Well, thank you, Melissa. And I, I would be glad to because, quite frankly, the work that we're doing is really important. I don't know what your reach is. I don't always know what my reach is. Uh, but I know that when I did a little video for about three minutes on what people could do to make their immune system stronger and talked about zinc and vitamin D and things like that. I know that some 10,000 people saw it and uh, they appreciated it. So sometime if I, I'd be glad to do it again. And if you want to sometime do some sort of a split Facebook or whatever, you mentioned that to me. Yes, let's definitely plan on that maybe within the next couple of weeks. Sounds good. And hopefully we'll have more data 
Well, I look forward to the next conversation. Thanks again, Dr. Scott Jensen from Minnesota, the Minnesota State Senator, as well as a physician, family care physician. I appreciate you so much. Thanks again. Thank you. Take care, Melissa.